You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're now weeks into what is the unfolding disaster in the territories right now and the conflict between Israel and at least out loud Hamas. We're now at a point in time where there have been thousands of lives lost. At this point, the balance has tipped. And as of today, there are 15,000 reported deaths of Palestinians. So we're going to return to a topic that we're going to cover over the next few weeks. And that is the role of Iran generally with respect to Israel, the relationship between Iran and Israel. And of course, because the U.S. always plays a vital role in any negotiations, one of the most important things to discuss is the relationship between the United States and Iran and its history. Iran, in this case, funding Hamas and arguably directing much of what is happening here. So fortunately, we have a guest who is an expert, probably a much more of an expert than I am. It is John Gazvinian. He is born in Tehran. He also is a graduate of Oxford University. And he is director, presently, of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. He's written an amazing book, which I can commend to all of our listeners, which is called America and Iran, A History 1720 to the Present. John, it's great to have you on. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So I've said some things that might strike you as controversial, but before we get into those, hopefully we'll have a robust debate. 1720? I feel that to most Americans, Iran became relevant in the moment in time when hostages were seized at the U.S. Embassy in 1979. But let's reverse some of those numbers because we can quite literally. And we can go back to 1720. How on earth did Iran have a relationship with the United States in these colonial times? Yes, you're quite right. There was no formal relationship. Of course, there was no United States either in the 1720s. What I was trying to do with this book was to take us away from exactly what you described as a tendency that we have in the United States to think of Iran or to not really have have much in our consciousness about Iran until 1979. You know, kind of look at where the history really begins and get away from this narrative of kind of blame and kind of what went wrong and kind of who started it and where things went wrong and kind of look at the idea that maybe things went right at some point or another. And so I was trying to go back as far as I could in history, but questions that perhaps obvious to a historian, but perhaps not you know, to a larger audience is kind of, where, where do you begin? How do you begin a story? And that was one of the things I really grappled with. Where do you begin? Does, does the relationship between these two countries begin with the opening of political relations between them, diplomatic relations, in which case you could go just back to about the 1880s, 1850s for the first treaty between the two countries, first exchange of diplomats is in the 1880s. You know, but I didn't want to just write a political and diplomatic history. I thought it was important to understand that relations between countries are about more than just the high politics. There is significant American presence in Iran in the form of Protestant uh, Presbyterian missionaries from the 1830s. There are traders, merchants, rum traders, etc., going back all the way to the turn of the 19th century, the early 1800s. But really, I also think that, that sometimes it's worth looking at prehistory, preconceived notions that two civilizations, two, two cultures have of each other, perhaps before political states even exist. Uh, and that takes us all the way back into the colonial American period, which is the earliest mention that I found of, quote unquote, Persia or Persians, as the newspapers at the time called it. But I found that there was quite a lot of discussion about Persia in the colonial American newspapers of the 1720s and published in Philadelphia and Boston. The reasons are kind of interesting and complex. I mean, there was a 
the two great empires of their day in what we now call the Middle East uh, were the Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire. They were arch rivals. The Ottomans were seen by all Christian Europeans as basically evil and a threat to their way of life. They had been for centuries, dating back to the Crusades, you know, and the Seljuk Turks, at least before the Ottomans, but even up until as recently as 1680s when the Ottomans had been trying to uh, sack Vienna. That was only a, you know 40 years before these newspapers were published. And so the Ottomans were the great evil empire, the great threat of their day to Christian Europeans, to British subjects as well. And then remember that for white colonial settlers in North America at the time, they saw themselves as British. And the Persian Empire was the enemy of my enemy. So they, they had there was a very idealized view of Iran, of Persia, as being a sort of more exotic, more harmless, you know, less threatening, less evil kind of and even less Muslim force to the East. And so I, you know, I begin with this concept of the kind of East of Eden. And I argue that that actually, you know, is relevant because in many ways that continues to inform the way that Americans looked at Iran all the way up to 1979. It was as late as the 1970s of, of sort of idealized view in the United States of Persia, Persians, Iran, this kind of glorious, glamorous pro-American Shah, uh, the king and his empress wife and, and so on that was seen as more favorable than most of the Arab states. So there was this kind of East of Eden mentality that I think, you know, you can trace actually for a couple of centuries. But Americans have traditionally acted to a degree in their economic interest when entering far-flung regions. And I guess the question is, this is before the discovery of oil. At least on this podcast, we have talked frequently about how oil has defined so much U.S. policy abroad, as well as British policy so in the 1700s and 1800s, you mentioned that there was a treaty that was forged between the United States and Iran on that, because we are an audience mostly of lawyers. What was that treaty and why did America enter into it? Right. So this was the first treaty of friendship between the United States and Iran. It was negotiated in the early 1850s or starting around 1851 finalized, not finalized until 1856, and not ratified by the US Senate until 1857. It took quite a few years. It was not unusual for the United States to be, and it was still, the United States was still a relatively young power, and it, there were still countries that it didn't simply didn't have relations with. And, and there was a feeling that increasingly a lot of the trade, a lot of rum and weapons and American cotton was being traded to Iran through the Ottoman Empire, and that the Ottoman middlemen were getting the best of the business. And, and there was, of course, um, some trade coming in the other direction as well, increasingly Persian rugs, dates, things like that. Interestingly, by around 1900, the US was actually exporting oil to Iran uh, at one point. But in these very, very early, very early days, uh, there was an increasing feeling that, that the US should establish relations with Iran. And of course, there were American missionaries living and working in Iran as well. And that's kind of was the tipping point. But the treaty took several years to negotiate. I always think it's kind of interesting that one of the biggest sticking points was the fact that the, the Iranians wanted US ships in the Persian Gulf flying the stars and stripes and manned by American sailors to send a message to the British and the Russians who were kind of constantly interfering in Iranian affairs. And the US uh, res really resisted this demand and said, look, we don't want to get involved in your business, which I always find is very interesting because that's the first disagreement the two countries ever had was the Iranians wanting more American involvement in their affairs and the US saying, no, no, we really don't want to get involved in this business. So we've obviously come a very, very long way from that. But that was that's the first treaty. Yeah. Okay, but moving forward into the 20th century, Iran sought a different kind of American assistance, and that was assistance in sort of managing its finances. And to me, this was incredibly interesting because our sanctions have been designed to sort of 
collapse Iran's finances and bring different power there. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the personalities, and you've written them quite well. They're very obviously larger-than-life personalities that stepped up to serve in these roles, what these roles were, and how that was ever worked out in the first place between the two countries. Yeah, so the reasons actually for this have to do with domestic Iranian politics, and the short version is that Iran had a revolution that most people are not very aware of. I mean, the the Iranian revolution, when you say Iranian revolution, people think of the revolution of 1979. It was actually the second revolution in Iran in the 20th century. The first was uh, back in 1906, the so-called constitutional revolution or the Mashrute, whereby Iranian constitutionalists, an interesting coalition actually of religious clerics, as well as bazaar merchants and sort of what you might call progressive modern intellectuals combined to demand more rights from the from, from the king, from the Shah, and the creation of a parliament or a majlis. Iran was actually the first Middle Eastern country, uh, actually arguably the first Asian country, uh, to have a constitutional revolution and a parliament uh, in the 20th century. The motivation behind this actually had a lot to do with the fact that the successive Shahs had given away these very one-sided economic concessions to the European powers uh, for more than a century. And there was a lot of frustration with that. There was, that had been done in a fairly unaccountable way that had disadvantaged Iran. And there was a growing nationalist feeling as well as a sort of constitutionalist feeling. This idea that Iran should manage its own affairs, that it shouldn't give away these lopsided treaties and concessions, economic concessions, but that also people should have a say uh, if it is going to do deals with foreign powers. So the Shah and his government shouldn't have the final authority on this. These things should be subjected to a sort of parliament that represented you know, merchant interests, clerical interests, and other kinds of um, local and tribal interests as well. So that's the background to this. And once the revolution succeeded and the parliament was, and a constitution was ratified and a parliament was created, one of the first things it demanded was an economic advisor from the United States. And the reason for that was because the United States was seen in Iran in a very idealistic way as a country that had all of the best things that the West had to offer without any of the things they didn't like. So basically, you know, there was a recognition that European powers, uh, Western powers were getting well ahead of uh, the Middle East in terms of economically, politically, militarily, etc. But there was also a lot of resentment about kind of imperialistic mindsets from the West. So there was a feeling of like, look, we need to learn from the West, but not at the point of a, the losing end of a kind of a gun barrel. And the United States was seen as a country that, you know, was prosperous, growing, up and coming, the next great superpower, if you want to call it that, of its day. But it didn't seem to have this imperialistic mindset that it had a very hands-off attitude to far-flung parts of the world. And it was very, very respected, much more so and much more trusted than Britain or Russia or France or Belgium or any of the other powers that were kind of scheming in various ways in, in Iranian affairs. So the parliament, you know, almost unanimously selected, uh, chose, you know, put out, to put out this request to the United States for an economic advisor. And the United States didn't want to send officially an economic advisor, but President Taft recommended an old friend of his, Morgan Schuster, Washington lawyer, to go in a private capacity and act as the new treasurer general of Persia. And he became a wildly popular figure in Iran. It really helped to put Iran on the map for Americans as well for the first time. He came, you know, he wrote this best-selling book and he came on a lecture tour when he got back. And really, Americans kind of rallied around Shuster uh, as well as the cause of the Iranian constitutional revolution um, against the European powers, which was really quite fascinating. That is fascinating. And that that particular bit of history came as a complete surprise to me. 
And it was a pleasure to read about it. He also sounds like he was quite a personality. It didn't last forever, though, did it? At some point, he sort of fell off. And then I feel that we move into this next phase. I'd like you to talk for a little bit. Most people picture one of the two Shaws, the Pallavi family. And that is what typically comes to mind in terms of 20th century rule. One of the things that might be confusing is sort of the structure of government it seems like it changes over time. Although, of course, you have this masjid. Did I say that right? <laughs> yes. Parliamentarians, those guys. In, In any event, it's hard to tell when you look at Iran, though, what the precise structure of the government is, because you have these leaders who are shahs, which is a king of sorts, right? And yet you have this parliament and we look at England and we see just, you know, the king now, queen previously was more or less a figurehead. And so it becomes very confusing when we think about these people as being venal, subjugating the population. Can you explain sort of the relationship between the Pallavis, different rulers, of course, father and son, and these parliamentarians who seem to be willing to do their bidding? And that becomes very confusing because we're imagining people who are, you know, independently elected, can do what they want, vote as they choose to for their constituents. It doesn't seem like that's exactly how it functioned in Iran. Yeah, so there are a few things to, to, to sort of, I think, bear in mind. One is that, you know, when you make the comparison to kind of European monarchs, you have to remember that, you know, in 1906, most, or if not many, European monarchies, constitutional monarchies had become, had evolved to become largely figurehead monarchies, right? But relatively recently, I mean, you know, well into the 19th century, many European monarchies were still not, they were not purely symbolic. And even in the UK, I mean, we forget, I mean, even even in the Victorian era, or as late as, let's say, the maybe the pre-Victorian era, yeah, there's a gradual process, right, by which the monarch becomes, sort of steps back and becomes more and more kind of symbolic in their role. So there isn't actually a, a sort of radical difference, actually, between the sort of Iranian constitutional settlement of the early 20th century and some Western kind of analogs. But, you know, to answer your kind of question, that relationship is one that evolves quite a bit over the 20th century. But I mean, in the early 20th century, when the constitutional revolution first takes place under the Qajar dynasty, the kings of the Shahs have become quite weak, not particularly respected. The last Qajar king is actually an adolescent. I mean, he's not, you know, he has a regent and so on. And the central state has become quite weak. So the parliament has this, the parliamentarians have a real moment of, and there is this kind of moment of kind of genuine independence and nationalist and constitutionalist kind of sentiment and so on. But the Qajar dynasty is overthrown and replaced by the Pahlavi dynasty uh, in the early 1920s and 1925. And the first Pahlavi Shah, Reza Shah, who's the father of the last Shah, was quite a dictator. And so he, he didn't abolish the constitution, but it was, it was sort of ignored, you know, and we all know how in ostensibly constitutional states, in many cases, informal kind of exercises of power can easily override, you know, what's the letter of the law. So the parliament continued to exist, but it became very quickly a sort of rubber stamp parliament. That changed a little bit when his son came to power in 1941. Uh, Mohammad Reza Shah, the last Shah of Iran, really did try in his early years to um, cultivate a more open uh, and more genuinely sort of liberal political atmosphere with multiple political parties. But Iran had, had, by that point, had a couple of generations without a real culture of sort of political participation and, you know, partisan politics and so on. The lid sort of came off. I mean, there were sort of dozens and dozens of political parties. There were hundreds of newspapers suddenly being printed from all different political persuasions, from, you know, anarchism to communism to, you know, religious radicalism to, you know, you name it. 
All of that largely came to an end and after the 1953 coup, the CIA coup that overthrew the most popular prime minister Iran has ever had, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was probably, was also by far the most democratically elected and sort of prime minister and the one with the most popular legitimacy. But of course, he tried to do something that was enormously popular with the Iranian public, but enormously unpopular with the British government, which was to nationalize Iran's oil company, uh, which until then had been in the hands of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, British oil company later BP. That precipitated a two-year spat with the, the United Kingdom, which ended in, well, which included the break-off of relations between Iran and the UK, and the British gradually convinced the new incoming Eisenhower administration in 1953 that, uh, that Mossadegh had to go. Just one of the CIA's first covert operations and one of the real turning points in US-Iran relations. After that, I should say, the Shah became more dictatorial. In the 1960s and 1970s, again, not suddenly, but gradually drifted more and more in the direction of autocracy, began to amend the constitution uh, so that the parliament became less and less potent. Well, before we get into what the role of the United States was in helping him acquire arms, which he seemed to have an insatiable appetite for, as you chronicle it in your book, but you describe him to a degree as a reluctant despot. He didn't naturally ease into that role. Uh, His father, as you describe him, was a Cossack, disciplined a very different personality. And the last Shah was a guy who had kind of partied it up in Swiss boarding school, had a good time, didn't seem to be very serious or disciplined person. And it, it, it seemed to be uneasy with that role. Is that right? And if so, how did the United States relationship with him facilitate this change from sort of the party guy who didn't really want to be that awful to somebody who was acquiring arms and jailing critics? Yeah, the Shah, the last Shah, was always a contradictory figure from his early years all the way to the end. He seemed very conflicted about what kind of king he wanted to be. There was a, a real part of him that wanted to be seen as a liberalizing monarch, a modern monarch for the 20th century. But there was also always a part of him that felt that he was somehow inadequate to his father's legacy, that he wasn't the kind of tough military guy that his, his father had been. And he vacillated between those two types of projections of power, really. And I say in his early years, he tried to play the liberalizing monarch. He felt that he got kind of overwhelmed when, you know, he felt that Mossadegh, the prime, his prime minister, was overshadowing him, was more popular than he was. And he was always very neurotic and kind of anxious about control over the military. And, you know, he kept the portfolio of defense minister and war minister and later defense minister for, him, for himself initially. And then, you know, it was always right up until the end, the foreign ministry and the defense ministry really reported in, in reality, reported directly to the Shah. I mean, technically to the prime minister, but, but the prime ministers well into the 1970s really only were allowed free reign on things that the Shah did not find threatening, like, you know, kind of transport and uh, energy and education and those kinds of portfolios. Defense and foreign affairs, the Shah always considered to be, didn't trust anyone other than himself, basically, to be fully in charge of those things. And by the end of his reign, he believed himself to be a sort of strategic genius when it came to, the, to these things. And he did, ha- he had learned a lot, of course, in his, in his during his reign. And he was increase, increasingly flattered in that way as well. The Nixon administration, you know, Richard Nixon personally really admired the Shah and really felt that he kind of was a guy who kind of understood international politics and and was a sort of sage, kind of elder statesman by the 1970s. And so that really fed into the Shah's ego in a lot of ways as well. But, you know, like I say, this was a gradual process. It was uh, it was always a little bit schizophrenic, and he vacillated a lot between these two types. Of, you know, for example, in the 1960s, and he also, by the way, I should say, he had this kind of neurotic fixation on the idea that the, that the British and the United States later 
kind of controlled everything. They pulled all the strings. And you could sort of understand why he felt that way to some extent, because the British and the Americans, well, the British removed his father from power, actually, during the Second World War and had a long history of interference in Iranian affairs. And of course, the US had overthrown Mossadegh in 1953. You know, the Shah was very sensitive to the opinions of American presidents. And so he vacillated to some extent, depending on who was in the White House. And I don't want to overstate or imply that the Americans, you know, had free reign in telling the Shah what to do. He was certainly his own figure. But, you know, when Kennedy came to power, he was this idealistic, new, young Democrat who believed in lifting up the poor of the world and, you know, in order, as, as the best way to fight communism. So a point of view that the Shah simply didn't agree with, but but felt he had to kind of respond to. So he launched his his white revolution, which was a sort of program of literacy and healthcare improvements and education and so on, in part as a way to be this magnanimous monarch for his people, but also in a part in part as a way to to, to kind of get Kennedy off his back a little bit. But then he loved it when Nixon was back in power by the late sixties and early seventies, and he really had a great relationship with the Nixon White House. The two men really shared a worldview, which was that you have to be tough on communism and you do that militarily. And he fed in very nicely to the Nixon doctrine as well, which, which of course, argued that in the parts of the world that the US didn't want to you know, project direct force, that it should work through proxies. And the Shah was happy to be a sort of American policeman in many ways in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf region. Relationship is much more complicated than that, and I certainly don't want to oversimplify it, but that, that speaks in many ways to, uh, to his kind of posture vis-a-vis the United States by the 1970s. His relationship with the United States, though, was punctuated by sort of unending sales of weapons. I mean, this seems to he seems to have provided a lot of money to defense contractors, aviation companies and the like. And in that way, I feel that the two countries reading your book became increasingly entangled in ways that were just retrospective inevitability being everything but toxic and inevitably fatal to him. And I thought you really described that in such a way that it was, you had that sense when you were done, that sort of retrospective inevitability in in reading it. But I guess I can't imagine, I'm trying to understand how that alone and his sort of despotic nature in that last decades of his rule were any more influential in terms of ultimately turning public opinion against him than some of his behaviors that were just sort of lavish and, you know, these Bacchanal style parties and sort of insanity in terms of spending. I mean, it's shocking, actually, to look at it. You want to describe just a little bit some of this, and I guess American entertainers, and there was some American involvement in some of these spectacles that I think even the American public would describe as just excessively sordid almost. Yeah, I mean, look, there are many reasons why the public turned against the Shah. There were economic uh, issues, there were cultural issues, there were religious issues, there were political issues, there were foreign policy dimensions to it. But yes, I mean, what you're alluding to is by the end of his reign, this perception of extraordinary decadence, a feeling of being really out of touch with the public, with a lot of its immediate needs. There was the perception, a basically correct perception, that there was a sort of decadent Tehran elite that was closely connected to the Shah's regime that benefited very nicely from it, that was wealthy, that was prosperous, that was very Western orientated, that was um, almost ashamed of its kind of Iranian or Muslim um, traditions that, you know, kind of partied and traveled, you know, in Europe and the United States and so on. And yes, the Shah hosted, of course, famously this this extraordinarily lavish party in 1971 for the 2500th anniversary of the Iranian monarchy that was broadcast all over the world. I mean, Barbara Walters was there broadcasting by satellite and Orson Welles, like, you know, sort of narrated the official documentary about it and so on. And it was, it was presented to the American public as this 
you know, in the way that royal Amer- British royal weddings are often presented to the American public without a great deal of depth, but sort of as a spectacle. The only trouble was, and the difference, of course, between Britain and Iran was that this was a, a deeply troubled society. This was a, tr- a society that where the king was becoming increasingly very unpopular and where the king was not a figurehead monarch, uh, the sort of harmless figurehead monarch, but actually the ruler of the country as well. And there was perceptions of corruption and, of course, inflationary issues and so on and so forth. So by the by the 1970s, people were really suffering on multiple levels. And, of course, there was this charismatic religious leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in exile in Iraq at the time and was preaching increasingly radical ways against the Shah. And that his message had a lot of appeal to the younger and poorer and more religious and more traditional segments of society, but also to some of the more left-wing, educated, and even socialist-leaning segments of society who saw him as a potential revolutionary leader. Right, even down to Jean-Paul Sartre, if I'm not mistaken, somehow took up his mantle, at least briefly. I'd like to move forward, though, in sort of the national security space. And we think of national security with respect to Iran in terms of sanctions law, terrorism, and its external operations, in particular, things like the formation of the IRGC, But one of the things that you talk about in your book that I think may be controversial to some, but you've argued it very persuasively, is how Israel has become involved in the dialogue with respect to sanctions on Iran. But one of the arguments that you have made is that whether you intended to do this, so I'm not going to put words in your mouth here, but that Netanyahu in particular has been sort of a master of jerking America's chain and helping America believe that Iran was enriching uranium for the purpose of weaponry. And there was that famous moment when he held up the wrath that purported to depict how close Iran was to having nuclear capability that would be devastating. I wonder if you could just talk for a little bit about that. And also, if you don't mind sort of restating some of your arguments, which are are important for people to understand, the first of which is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, please, that if Iran had this capability, they've had multiple opportunities to deploy it and have never done so. And they have shown over a period of time that they will not use sort of these, to use upon nuclear options in, in terms of WMDs chemical weapons, and the like. Do you mind sort of talking about some of the things that you have highlighted in the book on this score? Sure. I have no special insight, of course, into the Iranian nuclear program. It is a complex one. It is a an ambiguous one. And I think it's intentionally ambiguous. The vast, vast preponderance of evidence clearly suggests that uh, Iran has consistently, over a period of you know, 20, 30 years, repeatedly made made the calculation, or let's just say not made the calculation uh, that it makes sense to develop, to actually go for a weapon, that it is in a better position, a stronger position, playing ambiguity, which is an option that actually many countries around the world have exercised, a sort of nuclear, achieving a certain, certain kind of nuclear capability or a nuclear ambiguity or a sort of Japan option, as it's sometimes called, or a sort of screwdrivers turn away from the bomb. Basically, going to the point where you could build a bomb if you wanted to, but you'd choose not to, because on balance, it's more dangerous for you to actually race for the bomb than it is not to. The reasons for this are you know, multifaceted. For starters, it's important to remember that Iran is one of the original signatories of the, of the NPT, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, 1968, 1970s, when it was ratified, which means that it is almost impossible for Iran to actually build a weapon without anyone knowing about it. I mean, the reality is it's, it is 
I would almost say impossible for any country to build a nuclear weapon in secret without anyone knowing about it. Today, all but four countries are signatories of the NPT. The countries that have stayed out of the NPT or who have left the NPT have done so specifically because they wanted to build nuclear weapons and there was no other way for them to build nuclear weapons. And those are Israel, North Korea, uh, India, and Pakistan. If you stay in the NPT, you agree to have your nuclear program closely monitored. There's any kind of question about what the kind of nuclear research and technology is for. The basic principles of the NPT are that those kind of, those five countries that have nuclear weapons when the treaty was first created, France, Great Britain, Soviet Union, and now Russia, China, and the United States, that they agree to a process of gradually disarming themselves, which they've never fully done. All the other countries in the world that do join the NPT agree never to develop a nuclear weapon, uh, but as in exchange for agreeing to be sort of second-class citizens in that way, they will get cooperation from the nuclear haves, if you will, so that they can develop their nuclear industries for things like electricity and radioisotopes, medical research, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the big but caveat to that is that if any of these countries, if there's a suspicion that they are redirecting some of these nuclear technologies for non-civilian purposes, then the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, will come down pretty hard with inspections and protocols to make sure that they are using their nuclear technology for peaceful purposes. Iran has been subjected to a far higher degree of scrutiny than any other country ever in history that uh, is an MPT member, far higher than Israel, which never joined the MPT, far higher than India or Pakistan, which never joined the MPT. Because of it, this, its kind of unique position in this kind of political atmosphere, uh, and because it, basically Iran is simply not trusted by the superpowers, particularly the Western superpowers, we have watched over the past 20 years or so this kind of process of additional protocols and additional screenings and additional inspections and cameras and so on, and, and leading all the way up to the JCPOA, the nuclear deal that Obama administration signed with Iran. All of which has subjected to Iran's nucle- subjected Iran's nuclear industry to an to an unprecedented level of scrutiny, to the point that there's simply no way for them to build a bomb in secret. Now, does that mean that they don't want one or that they never will build one? I don't really know. I my argument is actually something a little bit more subtle than I think it's sometimes characterized as, which is that I actually think that we've created a self perpetuate. When I say we, you know, the the general atmosphere of dysfunction, political dysfunction between Iran and the United States, especially has generated a self-perpetuating cycle in which Iran has actually, which has actually accelerated Iran's nuclear program far more than than it would have otherwise, (laughs) and has actually, if anything, given Iran more incentive to feel like they should maybe simply, simply pull out of the NPT and race for a bomb the way that North Korea did in 2004. They have not made the decision to do that. And I think as long as the supreme, current supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is alive, I don't think they will do that. They still, I think, believe that on balance, they are better off playing within the rules rather than inviting, you know, pulling out of the NPT to brace for a bomb would simply invite you know, military intervention and pro- probably regime change and all these kinds of things. Having said that, I do think that we are moving into an era where they might st- start to think differently about this. And I think that's a real tragedy and a real failing of a, of you know, not just Western policy, but I think especially American policy, to be quite honest. I think it's something that could have been prevented. And I think we may end up in our lifetime seeing an Iran with a nuclear weapon that neither Iran nor the United States actually really ever wanted because of this dysfunctional way of handling this, something that didn't need to be a crisis, that didn't need to be this kind of big standoff you know, that went on for many years in the early 2000s and 2010s. So as you look at Iran today, knowing this history that you do, where do you think that Iran is going to be 
And what do you think is going to be the relationship between the United States over the next decade? I'm not very optimistic. I mean, something significant, something extraordinary would have to happen to change the dynamic. The relations between the two countries are worse than they've ever been. I mean, they're an absolute low point. Uh, worse than they have been since the hostage crisis of 1979-81. Of course, that, that was you know the only probably the only lower point. And there's no real indication of anything remotely resembling political will in either country to mend fences. And uh, the, the distrust between the two governments is as low as it's humanly possible uh, to be, I think, at this point. Among the publics, it's quite different, I think. But, you know, we all know that um, public opinion doesn't always drive policy, you know, in a sort of direct way. So, you know, I think from a governmental perspective, both Iran and the United States are focused on other parts of the world, you know, sort of China and India and Asia and so on. Um, of course, recent events have thrust the Middle East back into the kind of limelight and made, you know, these kinds of relationships much more relevant. But, you know, you can see it's not like any kind of hint of rapprochement between the US and Iran has come out of any of this. I mean, it, it, there's been a kind of back channel, some back channel signals from both countries so that they kind of know what they're operating with. Uh, you know, the United States making it clear that Iran shouldn't get involved and Iran kind of letting the United States know that it's, it has no interest in escalating the war or, you know, getting involved. You know, that's the extent of it. There had been some noise uh, before all of this of a sort of JCPOA light, a kind of nuclear deal light, where maybe the U.S., stopped enforcing some sanctions or peeled, even peeled back a couple of sanctions in exchange for the for Iran, low, you know, kind of going back to a lower level of, of uranium enrichment, you know, but that, all of that has just been put on hold from what I can tell in the last few weeks. So I'm not very optimistic for the short or even medium term, something dramatic would have to change. And what would that something dramatic be? I don't know. <laughs> that is, <laughs> uh, if I knew that, I would be in a very different position. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you tonight. I really enjoyed the book. I do think the writing was superior to most historians' writing. And I find it interesting that you were born in Tehran, and you have this perspective and have now been in the United States for, what, I don't know how many years, decades, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes. I grew um, up in the UK and then and later in the US. I've kind of gone back and forth a bit. But yes, I was one year old when we left Iran, so... So you don't remember it particularly well. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, right, I took three well, research trips for this book, but and as an adult, as an adult, so yes, and even discovered the Presbyterian Cemetery. So you said mm -hmm. in the end, was there anything left of it? Really, anything to see at all? Yeah. Uh, so for your listeners, I guess what you're referring to is the original American Presbyterian Cemetery in a very small village called Seir in northwest Iran. Yes, it's still there. It's very overgrown and kind of in in, in disrepair, but. Um, there's about 50 or 55 graves, I think, of some of the earlier generations of American Presbyterian missionaries in Iran there. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you tonight. My guest has been John Gazvinian, author of America and Iran, A History 1720 to the Present. And we appreciate you listening tonight to National Security Law Today. We'll continue our series on Iran and bring you additional guests in the coming weeks. You can find us on social media. We use the handle at ABA NatSec. If you have thoughts you need to share with us, you can do that by email. You remember email. You can find us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Remember to share this episode with a friend and have an intelligent conversation about national security and the laws that govern us. Be open to ideas that are not the same as your own. Have intelligent conversation and seek middle ground. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Potit. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. 
The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.